Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We'll begin in a moment at verse 26. Matthew 26, 26. I will remind you, as I do occasionally, that one of the great secrets of the Bible is that there's a table of contents at the front. So if you're not sure where to find Matthew Avail yourself of that table of contents. Matthew 26, 26, here in just a moment. A few weeks ago, in Exodus chapter 24, we took a look at the very first corporate worship service in the history of the world. The exemplar, if you will, the the model for how corporate worship should be conducted. And what did we see that it contained? There was the word of God read and preached. There was the giving of offerings. There was prayer. And it concluded with a celebratory meal in the presence of God. And then we looked at Acts 2.42, which is a summary of what the New Testament church Practiced, and we read this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they devoted themselves to the preaching of the word of God. And to the fellowship. And we saw in Acts how their commitment to the fellowship was such that they would sell what they had in order to provide for others. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. And to the breaking of bread and prayers. And there it is again, that meal, that communion with one another and with the Lord, so that at the onset of worship, corporate worship in the Old Testament, we see a meal eaten with God. And at the onset of the corporate worship in the New Testament, we see a meal eaten with God. In the weeks since we studied Exodus 24, we've been looking at the individual components of worship. We spent a Sunday considering music, a Sunday considering giving, tithing. Last week, we looked at baptism as an individual component of worship. And today, as we conclude our summer sermon series in worship, we are going to look more closely at the Lord's table. As we prepare to do so, let's pray. God... Reveal to us the, the truth revealed in your table. As you invite us to come to your table, let us understand the significance of that invitation. As you ask your people to eat with you and to drink with you, let us better recognize what that costs you and what it means to us. We pray this In the name of the one who made it possible. Amen. There is a table set. And as we look at that table, we see the subtle marks, which indicate that this is no ordinary Tuesday evening dinner. This table is marked by special things. But special doesn't always necessarily mean pleasant At the table, there is a man, a husband, and he is awaiting the arrival of his wife. He made this dinner. He set this table. 
Not because that was the normal routine. He was not the cook in this marriage. She was. But this evening, he wanted to do something special. And so he sits at that table waiting for his wife. He understands that fellowship is fostered by eating and drinking. We all know this. This is a human truth. It transcends cultures. It transcends languages. It is universal that over food and drink, fellowship is more likely to occur. And he longs for fellowship with his wife. And yet we recognize as we look at this room that the woman standing there, his wife, is not standing there rejoicing, but she is weeping. Deep, heavy sobs. The kind that take your breath away. The kind of sobbing that saps all of your strength to the point where you can't even cry anymore. Because when she walked in and saw that table set, that table of fellowship, that special effort, that her husband made, the guilt welled up inside of her and she confessed to him. I'm having an affair. I'm cheating on you. I have been unfaithful. And in that moment, as we see the scene, we recognize that in the husband's hand, that glass of wine that he was holding, waiting to fellowship with his wife, can become a cup of wrath. It could become a cup of hurt and anger. It could be thrown at the wall in fury and in pain. And if that happened, we would kind of understand. We'd kind of get it. The cup could also be used, that glass of wine might be used by that aggrieved husband as a way to force upon the offending wife the pain she has caused. Here, take it, drink it. You want to have an affair? You want to go have a good time with somebody else? Fine. Why don't you take these two glasses? Why don't you take the whole meal I've prepared? And take it over to your boyfriend, and you guys just have a party. And he storms out of the room. He could take that cup, that glass of wine, and turn it into a cup of his wrath. A cup that if she actually did drink it would be bitterness and irony and pain. What does he do with the glass of wine he's holding? Look now at Matthew 26, as I asked you to turn there a moment ago. Matthew 26, now as they were eating, real quickly, the they is Jesus and at least the twelve, but probably more. For Luke tells us in the same account that when Jesus reveals that he was going to be betrayed and they asked him who it would be, He says it's one of the twelve. Well, if it was only the twelve in the room, that would be a weird way to respond. So most scholars believe there are probably quite a few more of his followers with him and them in the upper room. Now, as they were eating, 
Uh, uh, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. John the evangelist recorded in chapter 6 how earlier in his ministry, Jesus had preached on this very same topic. He had preached to the crowds following John chapter 5 is the record of the feeding of the 5,000. John 6 is the follow-up ministry. And he says to the crowds that you have to eat of my body. You have to eat of my flesh. My flesh is real food, real nourishment. So this is not the first time Jesus has taught this. But he says now to the closest followers in that room, this is my body. Now, let's dispense right away with any sense of literalness. Jesus himself, alive, is standing there in front of them holding bread. Nobody in the room thinks that he means literally it's his body. The doctrine of transubstantiation, apart from being a theological abomination in that it re-sacrifices the sacrifice that was once for all, in addition to that, it is, it is a literary abomination. It forces literalness on a situation which was clearly not literal. Jesus holds up the bread to those in the room and says, this is my body. But what does it symbolize? Well, first, Jesus, like I said, has already taught that you have to feed on him. That real life, real nourishment has to come from him. That if you're to have spiritual life, if you're to be alive in your spirit, then you must. Feed on Jesus. And more than that, if you are to feed on the body of something, it must be dead. Now, you may have joked with your waiter, I want my steak so rare that it still moves. But that's not possible, is it? To feed on a body, the body must be dead. And so Jesus, when he says to those in the room, take and eat, this is my body, death must necessarily be included in the symbolism. There has to be death in order to feed on a body. The spiritual nourishment that we need from Jesus comes through his death. And that's why the bread symbolizing his body also symbolizes his death. And that is why we read in the New Testament, Paul says, when Paul reflects on this with the Corinthian church, you know, uh, do this and remember to me. And in doing, we symbolize his death, Paul reminds us. Because bodies must be dead to be eaten. Verse 27, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
In this moment right here, Jesus is taking any number of threads of, of Jewish tradition, of Old Testament history, and he's pulling them together in one moment. We saw some weeks ago how this quote, the blood of the covenant, is from Exodus 24. That's where Moses takes the blood of the covenant and applies it to the people. So Jesus is hearkening back to that inaugural corporate worship service at which there was a fellowship offering, at which they then dined upon that fellowship offering in the presence of God. So he's pulling in the idea of that fellowship offering, that which you eat with God following a sacrifice. What else is going on here? Well, this is the Passover that Jesus is celebrating. He has gathered his own for the celebration of the Jewish festival known as the Passover. It commemorates the freeing of the people from Egypt. It commemorates how they were set free as the angel of God, the angel of death, came through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn in every household upon which there was no blood. Where there was blood, where there was a sacrificed lamb and blood applied to the outward part of the house, that house would be spared. It would be passed over. And he is celebrating that meal with his followers. And he is the host. In the tradition of the Seder, in the tradition of the Passover uh, a symbolic meal, the head, the head of the household, the host, is the one who narrates the meal, who comments on each part and explains its place in the meal and in their history. And Jesus is clearly the one commenting, commenting and explaining so whoever it is that owns this house, whoever, the, whoever it is that owns this upper room, he is not acting as the host. Jesus clearly is. And that is not to be missed. The host for the Lord's table is not the pastor who administers it. It is not the church in which it is administered. The host of the Lord's table is none other than Jesus Christ. He is our host and our guide. And as our host, he is walking them through the Seder meal. He is taking them through each of the symbolic steps. And we're not going to go through the fullness of all the symbolism of that meal, though it is instructive and it is worthwhile. But this morning I would like to comment on the fact that there were four cups, four drinks, of not necessarily four individual physical cups, but four times the cup was filled and drunk. Wine was taken four times in that meal, twice before the meal and twice after the meal. Hence the comment, after supper, Jesus took the cup. We're looking at the third cup of the Seder meal. So what do those cups symbolize? Well, for millennia now, the Jews have said the four cups point to Numbers 6, 6 and 7. Numbers 6, 6 and 7, which reads as following. Say therefore to the people of Israel, 
I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Now, what we're about to read in a moment as I continue reading is four promises. Those four promises correlate to the four cups of the Seder meal. And here is the first promise. Um, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The first cup of the Seder meal reminds the Jew of that promise. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. Second cup before the meal. The promises of freedom from Egypt. Then the Passover meal, which symbolizes how that freedom came to be. Then the third cup and the third promise. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is the third cup after the supper, which Jesus holds up as the cup of the new covenant in his blood. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's the cup which becomes the cup of the Lord's table. Verse 29, what does Jesus do next? Does he take the fourth cup of wine and finish the Seder? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The meal is left unfinished. Jesus does not take up the fourth cup, symbolizing the fourth promise. And for those of us who are not steeped in Jewish tradition, at this moment we have to be begging, tell us what that fourth promise was. What promise did he not symbolize? That fourth promise in Numbers 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. The fourth cup was to symbolize the promise of God being the God of the people and those people being his. And Jesus says, not now. We're not going to drink this cup now. We're going to drink this cup someday in the new Jerusalem. It's why we speak of the Lord's table as being a remembrance of his death. And do we leave it there? Until he comes. It looks back to his death, but it awaits the consummation of that fourth cup, of the cup of the promise to be his people and for him to be our God. And what did the Apostle John have revealed to him in Revelation 21? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. How exciting for the Apostle John to have been at that meal, to have had that fourth cup of the Seder not drunk, not lifted up, not taken, but to get this glimpse of its fulfillment in the New Jerusalem. 
that Jesus promised, I will drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And then, some years later, John gets a glimpse of a voice from the throne. And who sits upon the throne in Revelation? It is the Lamb. It is the slain one. It is Jesus who sits on that throne and says in the new Jerusalem, now come and let's celebrate God being your God and you being his people. And that's what was left hanging at that meal. Picking up in verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It is not without significance that Jesus, knowing full well that every one of those who took that meal would abandon him, still offered them that meal, still held up the cup of the new covenant in his blood. How many of us say, I can't come to this table because I am unworthy. I don't want to partake because of the sin, the brokenness in my life. The problem there is this. So when you did partake last month, did you see yourself as worthy? Did you really look in the mirror and think, huh, I've earned it. We are unworthy every single time. Because we all fall away. Because we all abandon Jesus under the pressure of this life and of this world. To those who would abandon him, he offered the cup of the new covenant and told them to drink of it. This table is not for those who are worthy in and of themselves. This table is for sinners made worthy by Jesus. For more on that issue, there is some a, a, a further teaching in the bulletin that we don't have time for in the sermon. Continuing in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the place called, called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be uh, sor sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, now listen to the language. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. On this night, Jesus takes two seemingly divergent, polar opposite interpretations of cup and brings them together in one symbolism, in one meal. You see, while wine symbolized back then, as it does today, celebration, joy, festival. And by the way, this idea that, you know, they just drank wine because you know, the water wasn't uh, palatable and they had to drink. No, no. They drank water and a lot of it. 
If not, then why at the wedding in Canaan were there jars and jars of water ready and waiting to be converted to wine? And why was the woman at the well drawing water so that Jesus could sit down and talk with her? Water was the normal drink. Wine was special. It was for special occasions. Jesus takes it now and applies it in another way, though, as well. You know, sudden, unexpected calamity, when when something befalls us in a way that we did not see coming, when we are shocked by catastrophe, our response is interesting. Frequently, we've probably all seen videos of people, whether they are coming out of a collapsed building or, or uh, uh, perhaps it was a 10 years ago, with that, uh, 10 years ago, whenever it was that tsunami in Japan. We've all seen the video of people stunned by the unexpected catastrophe. And how do they behave? They stagger. They stumble about. They're incoherent. They can't make sense of the world around them. They act as if they are drunk. Job noticed this 4,000 years ago, noting that God's judgments can make men stagger. David, in Psalm 60 and in the psalm we read this morning, he talks about a cup of staggering. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah all speak of God's wrath being a cup of staggering. And the symbolism begins to evolve over time that the wrath of God, the impact it has in our lives, is akin to drunkenness. It leaves us in a stupor. It leaves us stunned and staggering and incoherent. So that over time, the cup of wine, which could be in one context a sign of celebration, was in another context a symbol of wrath. So it is on this night that Jesus holds up a cup, a cup of wine, a cup which would point us to celebration, But he holds it up as the third cup of the Seder meal, the cup after dinner. And we already said that was the cup that symbolized the promise of God's outstretched arm acting a great act of judgment. And now he says, take the cup from me. Take celebration from him? Take joy from him? No, that's not what he's asking for. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him that he endured these things. Jesus, in his humanity, does not want to face the wrath of God. He does not want to drink the cup of God's anger, which causes men to stagger. And yet... He does so. He willingly does so. John records for us how 
Peter drew a sword to stop Jesus' arrest and how Jesus says to Peter, put it away, for shall I not drink this cup? Jesus willingly consumes the cup of God's wrath. Now think about that for just a moment. The sheer mathematics of it is overwhelming. For Cain, who stands at the head of unbelieving humanity, has been drinking from that cup of God's wrath for about 6,000 years, maybe more. And he has barely made a dent in it. There is for him an eternity still of drinking the cup of God's wrath. And that would be true of me and of you if Jesus had not drunk it for us. So Jesus drunk down wrath, equivalent to Cain's 6,000 years, plus all the millennia that are still to come, times the millions and billions of those who would be saved by him. The wrath poured out on Jesus is unimaginable. We cannot begin to fathom it. And that he drinks it willingly, that he chooses to experience it, we see on the cross. When he is offered two drinks, you may recall how upon the cross, on one occasion he's offered a drink and he refuses it. On another occasion he's offered a drink and he accepts it. What's going on there? The drink he refused as you may recall, was wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh is an analgesic. It is a pain reliever. Wine and myrrh together are a pretty strong narcotic and are also a a sedative. And it was common in the ancient world for those who were nursing the hurting or dying to mix myrrh with wine and to give it to them as a drink to alleviate their pain and usher in sleep. That's the cup Jesus refused on the cross. That's the drink he wouldn't take. Let nothing come between me and this pain. This pain must not be deadened. It must not be killed. Because if this pain is softened, if it is deadened, if anything uh, 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 alleviates this pain other than me experiencing it, What I do here on this cross will be ineffective. Humans offended God, and therefore a human had to bear the wrath of God. And he says, take away from me the cup of pain relief, so that I may drink the cup of God's wrath. On this night, our Lord and Savior held up the cup that symbolized God's great act of judgment by his outstretched arm, and then he drank that cup. He drank the cup of God's judgment, of God's wrath, of God's fury against sin, of God's holy, righteous judgment upon the ugliness of sin. And he drank it down to the dregs for each and every one of you.
and he turned that cup into a cup of hope, a cup of celebration, a cup of rejoicing. So what of the aggrieved husband holding his wine glass sitting at that table Does it have to be a cup of hurt and pain thrown against the wall? Does it have to be a cup of wrath forced upon his unfaithful wife for her to drink in bitter irony? We would understand each of those scenarios and probably count him justified. But there is another path. There is another way to see this play out. What if he gets up from the table, pulls out a chair, pours another glass of wine, invites her to sit, and then says this, I know. I've known all along. We're here because I know. We're here because I'm aware of your unfaithfulness. But I want to start anew. I want to rekindle the relationship. I want to make this like another first date where we start with a clean slate. And I want to commune with you. I know about your affair. That's why I made this supper. I know you've been unfaithful. And I know that you cannot help yourself. You know, Jesus, he took this table here. Jesus took this table and taking it, he said to the sinners in the room, come and participate. Come and be part of this. I know about your unfaithfulness. I know about your sin. I know the way that you are hurting and you have hurt others and you have hurt me. But that's why this table is here. That husband could have just said the words to his wife, I love you. And to be sure, words are important. Words must be a part of it. It's why this table is always joined to the words of God. It is always a part of a worship service. It's why we do not offer this table apart from the preached word of God, but in conjunction with his words. Words matter and they are important, but God, knowing our feeble humanity, knows that words are not always enough for us. There are times we need actions. It's why our confession of faith speaks of this table and of baptism as sensible signs. They are things which can be sensed, which we can see hear, touch, smell, and taste. God gave us these things as concrete, objective things with which we could interact. And this table is a concrete picture of the gospel. You have sinned against God. 
He would have every right to take this cup of celebration and turn it into a cup of wrath, throwing it at you, making you drink of its bitter irony, making you stagger under his judgment. But that's not what he did. Instead, Jesus drank the cup of the wrath down to its dregs, down to the very bottom, so we could drink the cup of joy and celebration. Don't come and partake because you deem yourself worthy. Come by faith, believing that Jesus drank God's wrath for you fully, completely, leaving you this cup of fellowship, this cup of communion instead. Come because he has invited you. Come because he has asked. And while it's not our usual practice, and I'm not trying to force a precedent upon us, but in light of this sermon, we are going to do something different today. We are going to physically come in just a moment, physically get up and approach the Lord's table at his invitation. Coming to God should be a terrifying thing, and it's good to be reminded of that. But it's better to be reminded that we can come. We can respond to the host's invitation by faith, believing that because he drank the fullness of God's wrath for me, there's nothing left in that cup to fear. Thus, by faith, we step forward to the table, confident that we receive the cup of God's communion and of his fellowship rather than the cup of wrath we deserve. It is a cup also of our fellowship and communion with one another. And so after you've come, please return to your seat and hold the elements. And we will then proceed together as one body. Jesus offers the bread of his body and the cup of the new covenant in his blood. So come now, ye sinners. <laughs>